guys sound awesome. We get ready to praise God. Amen. Amen.
I pretty much insisted on coming up and dancing, and the elders had to hold me off. They said, we want reverence and inspiration, not comedy and embarrassment. I, I didn't really know what they meant, but here I am. This is the final part of our service, which is the sermon. And I'm a Douglas Jacoby, and I'll be speaking today. Uh, Tom Brown phoned me this morning. He's down in Florida. Jeff, uh, at a niece's wedding this weekend, Jeff Hickman is preaching in Gwinnett. I'll be there tonight uh, uh, teaching there, and I'll be there in a few weeks as well. Jeff and John, and now I join them, are doing a series on the Gospel of John, which is a blast. I just got back from Florida. Uh, everyone says, how was the beach? It's not, never the beach. It was teaching. It was meetings. Actually, it was five days of committee meetings. I know that sounds incredibly exciting to you, as it is to me. Actually, it was very unifying, very good, down with the people from Florida International University, as in Matt Cheer and so forth. And uh, this, uh, this week's a big radio week. I was on in Michigan last week. Tomorrow's another Michigan interview. Then uh, Florida, and then Wednesday, I think, is Virginia to New York. So I'm doing a lot of cool stuff like that. I love preaching from John. Let me tell you why before we jump in. I like John because it has 90% of its material, which is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's a lot of new stuff. Those Gospels have big overlap. John has a lot of new stuff. Matthew traces Jesus back to Abraham Luke takes him back to the first man, but John takes Jesus back to the beginning of time. So the scope is quite a bit more. In John, I think more clearly than the other Gospels, we see the two sides of Jesus that is human and divine. The incarnation is the fancy word for God becoming flesh. We see this throughout John. On the human side, we see, John, we see Jesus get tired in John 4. We see him weeping at his friend's death. John 11. But we also see his divine side. He walks on water, uh, John 6, something that we read that God does in, in Psalm 77. And John 10, I and the Father are one. And you have chapters like our chapter today, which bring the human and the divine together. And chapter 1 does the same. I love John because it's an invitation to you and me to bring others to experience what we've experienced. You know, in the Old Testament, you have that verse in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8. It's not just something intellectual, though there's definitely, uh, you've got to love God with all your mind. But the faith is something that we experience. You taste it and see. So if you're saying, well, I only taste it if it makes perfect sense to me, you may be deprived the rest of your life. 
John is full of invitations. And I find passages like 139, come and see. 146, come and see. 1134, come and see. Common words in John. That's what we all do. We're asked by someone else, come and see. And then we, in the spirit of 2030, we ask others to come and see. Oh, there's just so many great things in John. And also, there's so much dialogue. We have this terrific unit uh, that goes from chapter 13 to 17. It's all on the last night of, Je- of Jesus' last full day on the earth. Chapter 13 to 16, he's teaching and explaining. And then chapter 17, you have a very beefy prayer. And if I understand the other Gospels, then he crossed the Kidron Valley and he had more time to pray in Gethsemane. And so, for these reasons and many others, I'm very excited about teaching from John. Uh, now, when Tom and Jeff said, cover chapters 16 and 17, I just smiled. I mean, how can you, how can you cover two whole chapters in, in any kind of depth? I mean, you can't really. In Miami last week, I preached on Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And I said yes to my friend John Reyes. That's, that I can do. Two verses, that'll fill the half hour pretty easily. But it's like two chapters. So I will fly through. I'll hardly teach anything from 16. And 17, I can cover in a sense because it's well organized. I mean, the, John, the, the Bible chapter is well organized. Hopefully my notes are too. You'll be the judge of that. So I'm starting in chapter 16. I have told you these things. Remember, this is in, we're picking it up in the middle. Last week's sermon uh, ended in John 15. I am the vine, you're the branches, bear fruit. And by the way, the world's going to hate you. Okay, very encouraging. So we pick it up in chapter 16 in that, with that spirit of, of a persecution. And it says, and I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling, you know, from falling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. They'll do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Now, that's encouraging. Trouble's on the way. By the way, when they kill you, they're going to have a completely good conscience about it. They're going to think this is part of our worship. You know, it's part of what we do as, as good believers in God. So that's there. And you know, I cannot read verse 2 without thinking of the Apostle Paul. The man who insisted, as you read the book of Acts, that he always had a good conscience. And that's not just post-conversion, that's pre-conversion as he captured, tortured, and executed men and women to force them to blaspheme, to execute them as heretics. And he thought he was doing God a, a service. So I'm wondering if Jesus had Paul in mind there. Fortunately, Paul changed. And then if you go in the middle of the chapter, it's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, verses 5 to 15. Then he alludes to his death, which is imminent, in 1616. And, of course, through his death, we come to God. Despite their faith and joy at the moment, Jesus ends the chapter saying, they will soon abandon him. You know, they're, they're getting very encouraged because it says, oh, now you're speaking clearly. Now we get it. You, you'll read that when you fly through 16. And he says, oh, yeah, in a few minutes, you're all going to abandon me. Now we come to 17. In the midst of our tremendous neediness and fickleness, Jesus 
offers a prayer, sometimes called the high priestly prayer. It's like the prayer before the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And he's giving this great prayer. And so please follow me um, in your Bible. If it's not up there, then just look down at your Bible, please. 17. Now, the prayer falls into three sections, and that'll be my structure. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. We're going to go through most of this prayer. We'll do it in parts. A lot easier to absorb it that way. Interesting. Verse 1, how does Jesus pray? I mean, physically, how does he pray? Did you catch it? Okay, most of you would say you're Christians. Do, are you like Jesus when you pray? Do you look up? No, we look down. <laughs> are your eyes open as you look to heaven? No, we close our eyes. That is not what this message is about. It's just kind of interesting how different we are with Christian tradition. The early Christians looked up with their eyes open. We look down. We even say, bow your head and close your eyes. No peeking. <laughs> Which I always find it's interesting to be praying, but maybe keep one eye open and just kind of look around and course, if you catch someone else whose eyes are open, you're bound by an, an understood uh, pact. You know, you can't tell on each other because I won't tell on you. <laughs> but all this is needless because in the Bible, you're supposed to be looking up. But anyway, okay, move on. That's not really the point. He prays to God. And what does he say? Notice his words. We're going to notice some things in this chapter that I, I've never seen. In the time I spent preparing for this message, I saw stuff I'd never seen. And I've read John a lot. I mean, I love John. He calls him Father. Simple. Father, the hour has come. As a student of world religions, and I think I told you I was invited to, to universities to, to be on the panel with Muslim scholars in Bangladesh. Had a couple of very interesting and I hope productive interactions last year. As close as Islam is to Christianity, because Islam borrows a lot from Judaism and Christianity, it's not the same God. They say Allah has 99 names, like the merciful, the all-knowing. Father is not one of those names. That was a very un-Islamic thing to approach God as Father. Yet Jesus encourages us to approach God as Father. Now, he says, my Father, We're, we say our Father. Firstly, because prayer in the New Testament is envisioned more as something in a group than an individual. And second, it's my Father, Jesus says, because he stands in a unique relationship to God. 
God was not his father the way, say, God is your father, Mac or Susan. You know, I mean, it's not the same. Don't even think it is. The hour has come. What does that mean? Throughout John, there's a sense of timing. At the right time, God sends his son into the world. Remember that that kind of awkward interaction between Jesus and his mother? Son, you know, the wine situation. And he, it looks like he bristles, though I'm not sure he's really bristling. You know, why do you involve me? You know, my time's not yet come. He has that tension with his brothers who try to advise him on his uh, public relations strategy. You should go up now and, you know, become famous. And he says, I can't. I'm on a schedule for you. Anytime's right. For you, you know, it's all slushed together. I have a plan here. And you go through John and you can, it depends on your translation. It might be the word hour or the word time. But it's all about the timing. But here in chapter 17, he says the time has come. We're at the very end of his life. And this is eternal life. Did you catch that one? This is not what most people think. See, verse 3, eternal life is that they may know you. We'd say, no, eternal life is, uh, is living forever. I love the way, uh, you know Woody Allen, the comedian? He says, I mean, he's, he's a pretty funny guy. He says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. <laughs> <You know? laughs> when we think of eternal life, we're thinking quantity. It's how much time, hopefully, it'll never end. In the Bible, eternal life, I'm, I'm not discounting that, but eternal life is more quality. It's the nature of what you experience. And that's why Jesus says, eternal life is to know God. In fact, in chapter 5, he says, if you believe, and he's obviously talking about authentic faith, you've crossed over from death to life. In other words, eternal life begins now. That rebirth, John chapter 3, puts us into eternal life even before we die. And if I understand the Scriptures correctly, and I know I'm in a minority on this, No human being has eternal life except those who are saved. The others are not given this guarantee of unconditional immortality. Go back all the way to Genesis and you can explore that. Eternal life begins now, 524. And Jesus brought glory by completing the work for the Father. Anton, in the communion talk, and thank you, Anton directed us into that thought. He brought glory to God by completing his work. But then look at those words in verse 5. Father, glorify me in your presence. Have you ever prayed that? Dear Lord, uh, just bring me glory. It, It would sound egotistical. Well, then why doesn't it sound egotistical when he says it? Because if you haven't studied it, admit it, it is kind of egotistical. But the question is, what did he mean, or how could he say it and it's not a sin? He says, glorify me. And many of us think, well, it's wrong to seek glory. Ah, the Apostle Paul told us in Romans 2 that we should seek glory. In fact, we should seek immortality. You mean like we should be selfish? Oh, no. Seeking glory in the Bible is never about self-glory. And chapters like Jeremiah 45 quickly rebuke us if that's what we're thinking. The glory is seeking God's honor. It's not our honor. It's seeking God's honor. And it's glorious 
to do it for God, to complete the work for God. We think of glory and sports. I think there's been some basketball being played lately. I'm not totally clear on it, but I know what's going on. I'm only two-thirds joking about that, you know. I'm not really following it. I wish I could. But glory, we, we admire it. We get very excited about it in many fields of human life. And I'm, that's not necessarily illegitimate. But how much more should we be excited about glory for God? I mean, and if you think sports are exciting, that's flat boring compared to one day in the courts of God. Read Psalm 84. You'll see that. We bring glory to God by doing His work. And Jesus prays here, this is part one of His prayer, that He will bring glory to God by finishing His work through His mission and through His death. We can bring glory to God by completing the work of God also. And not just in some general vague, vague way, but in everything that we do. Whether it's in our work tomorrow morning, whether it's in school as you cross the finish line and finish the semester, bringing glory to God or in the activities you have. But we bring glory to God. And I, I appreciate Anton for directing our thoughts that way. Let's go on to the middle section of the prayer. You ready? So the first section he prays about himself. Now he's praying for his disciples. And he says this. And please try to notice the, the words. I think they're significant. I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that all things you have given to me are from you. Because the words that you gave me, I have given them. They've received them. He's talking about the message here. And have known for certain that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those you've given me because they are yours. Permit me to pause right here and just, just comment a little bit. I revealed your name to the men. Well, what's the big deal? Why would you need three years to reveal God's name to the apostles? I mean, is there some build, you know, great, great big buildup? And then on the last day, he whispers, Yahweh. It's pronounced Yahweh. Is it about a word? I mean, there's a, an entire denomination that seems to be built around the correct pronunciation of God's name. It's Jehovah. Even that misunderstanding is it's easily proven incorrect. But does anyone say his name right? That misses the point entirely. That question misses the point. Revealing his name is just as when God revealed his name to Moses in Exodus 34. His name is not a word. It's not a handle. It's not a, a handle by which you grab onto God and manipulate him. Oh, no. God's name is who he is. It's his nature, his authority, his presence. It's the quality and the being and the personality of God. And to reveal that is not something you, you don't just attend a lecture and, oh, now I know God's name. No, no, no. This is learned in life. And it takes years of pouring over the scriptures and putting them into practice. And so he says, I revealed your name. Also, you, you saw, I'm not praying for the world. 
Oh, he's not praying for the world? Should we pray for the world? Well, maybe we should. That kind of prayer strikes me as a little bit too general. I can understand it if someone is four years old, and God bless all the world, and be with everybody. But what does that really mean? Is that really an action plan? Well, I think God, God hears those prayers. But what Jesus did is he focused, he leveraged it. I know if this group will do well, then through them, the world has hope. And so he prays not for the world, but he prays for this uh, small group, the 11. And I I tend to think he was looking down the road. He's looking at, I say the 11 because Judas had gone out by this point. Judas was the, uh, the traitor, if you're new to the Bible. And so the 12 became the 11. He sees Peter. And perhaps he's aware, Jesus is aware of what will happen at Pentecost. And then when Peter heals and raises from the dead and eventually meets Cornelius and preaches to the Gentiles and perhaps ends up in Italy, I think he looked at Andrew and he thought of Scythia or Russia. Perhaps he looked at Thomas, who was really far from the doubting Thomas label you know, we, we've slapped on him, Thomas, who who went to India about 20 years later and began preaching the gospel there. And perhaps he looked down the road at Paul, the embodiment of John 16 too. Paul, who would be shown how much he must suffer for Jesus' name and who would take the gospel all over Asia, not Africa, though, that was someone else, and also to Europe. He was praying for them. Verse 10, everything I have is yours. Everything you have is mine, and I've been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you've given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I have given them, down verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world hated them because they're not of the world as I'm not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Pause. Are you getting your head around this? Around this middle section of his prayer as he's praying for his disciples. He addresses God in a unique way. He says, Holy Father. It's unique because unique means one of a kind. Nowhere else in John, in fact, nowhere else in the entire Bible, Will you find the phrase, Holy Father, only here in John 17, 11. There's some significance to this, and we will return to it um, as we move towards the conclusion. Holy Father, protect them by the name you've given me. And in this section, we're called to be holy. That means to live pure, sanctified lives, committed lives, radically devoted and that will happen by our holding to his word. He, he talked about that extensively back in chapter 8 and in chapter 15. Jesus prays that we as disciples stay holy in the mission. Verse 14 is a famous verse, you know, in the world but not of the world. And there are a couple ways to look at this. Well, I'm in the world but I'm not of it. So park the buggy around the back. Let's disengage from society. Okay, I'm not down on the Amish paradise. Um, I believe that there's some very good motivations behind that movement. 
but I don't think it's a level of engagement with the world that we're looking for. And yet on the other end, we say, well, I need to be relatable. This is in the name of relatability, First Corinthians 9. I need to become all things to all men, and that's why I go the places I go, say the words I say, and behave the way I behave. And you can cross the line. Nothing wrong with song and dance. Nothing wrong with a party. But can you see how someone would use that as an excuse for doing anything he or she wanted to do? This is a balance here. It's a balancing act. We're in the world, but not of the world. And so I ask myself, and, and I ask you to ask yourself, you're in the world, obviously, but are you of the world? How worldly am I? How much do the things of the world attract me? John writes in 1 John two fifteen to 17, that desire for personal glory and to be cool and for cool possessions, to make a statement with my life, it's utterly worldly. That cannot define us as Christians. Um, a little bit more. They're going to be protected by God's name. This is not an amulet. You know, you, you wear a, a pendant around your neck that has the name of Yahweh on it, and now you, you'll be impervious in battle. It's kind of funny. If you ever study history, a lot of crazy cult movements have got their followers to fight, telling them that if you wear this amulet or if you're praying to the god or the goddess, then bullets won't hurt you. I'm not joking. This happens even today in Africa. Uh, or that, well, if you die, you'll, you'll resurrect quickly. Or that somehow if you don't come back from the dead, then something even better will happen to you. That is not the way the name of God protects us. It's not, oh, well, I, I go to a church that has the correct church name. Do you really think that going to the optimal denomination is going to be some guarantee that you, you're right with God? <laughs> Jesus didn't say that. The name, being protected by the name in this paragraph, is connected with our following the Word. It's connected with God's message, and that's why studying the Word is, is so central here. What makes the difference is truth protection before going into battle. And I ask myself and I ask you, are you suited up? Have you suited up today, tomorrow? How prepared are you when you walk out the door in the morning? Oh, well, uh, well at least I'm conscious. Ten minutes before I was sleeping. I think we got to do better than that. that. What was Jesus praying for? Don't let his prayer be wasted here. And yet strength without unity will not work. See that verse 11, protect them by your name you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. How can there be unity among those who come to faith through their message if the leaders themselves are not united? That's really messed up. 18 and 19. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And I don't think Jesus could have prayed with confidence that God would protect them if he wasn't living out the right kind of life himself. It's, it's very hard to call others to live a certain life when we're not willing to live that life. And that's, you know, the, the, the outsider says, I don't want to be part of this because it's, it's hypocrisy. That may be an excuse, but there's a great point there. Our message is supported or it's discredited based on our lifestyle. 
and when you say, well, the lifestyle doesn't matter because once you're saved, you're always saved, and, you know, it's really irrelevant, and, you know, just as long as you have faith, or as long as you, you know the name of God, you're okay. Well, no, that will drive the world away. The world's looking for authenticity. We of all people should be offering it and, and, and living it out. I pray and I pour over the scriptures and I push myself, not just for me to make it the last day, but for others to be able to make it the last day. For them, I sanctify myself. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? Do you see it? Do you agree with me? Is my interpretation off? What do you see when you look down at verse 19? If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? You have to answer that. Sanctification takes place through the Word of God. Justification is when we become right with God. Initially, sanctification, we become more holy. And that's a daily process, a daily process of being transformed. And now we move to the final section as he prays for all believers. Jesus says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you've given me. May they be one as we are one. Now, you don't get this in John's gospel, but if you go to the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, what were the... um, the disciples doing earlier that evening. They're pushing and jockeying and arguing about who's the greatest. So it's not like this is a theoretical prayer, just in case you ever have unity issues. They had unity issues a couple hours before. They were arguing, and not just arguing. It was crass. It was all about Ego. I'm the man. No, I'm the man. Well, at least me and my brother, we're the top two men. I mean, that's bad. It's, it's not right to argue. Definitely not right to argue about that, especially when your Savior is about to be arrested and killed for your sins. How could they not get it? How could they be so thick and to live so inconsistently when, when Jesus' death and, and life are, are right before their eyes? And if we even begin to ask that question, It comes right back on us, doesn't it? How can I be so inconsistent? You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The word that comes to mind when Jesus talks to his disciples often is numbskull. You, where's your faith? Where's your knowledge? Don't you get anything? And John, they're they're perpetually on the wrong channel. Jesus is always on channel one, the spiritual channel. They're on channel two, the earthly channel. And the confusion is both comic and tragic. And that's one of the big unifying themes of the gospel of John. But we don't just read it to laugh at them. We read it to look at ourselves, to to look inward, introspectively. I think we ignore these words too often. Or we give them a token uh, compliment. Yes, unity is a good thing. Yes, um, I I try to be supportive. It may show itself in apathy towards sister churches. You don't have to, to follow the prayer calendar in the North River Bulletin to be saved. But that's the right idea. On the back page, remembering brothers and sisters around the world, not apathy. It could be a superior attitude towards other Christian groups. I know what some of you are thinking. 
Douglas, define Christian group. That is sometimes easier said than none. Because you know, we know you've got to hold to the core of the gospel to qualify as Christian. And we know some people are really weird in the things they believe. But it's not like we're the only ones who've thought about the core of the gospel. And we can have a superior attitude. Do we really think there are no holy people outside our little fellowship? The only holy people on the planet are in the Church of Christ or people like us. Do you think that? Do you realize how funny that sounds? How annoying that could be? How comical it would be to an atheist who's looking at the 34,000 denominations in the U.S.? Yep, we're the, we're the saints. We're the holy ones. No one else counts. It's not only unlikely, it's comic, it's arrogant, it's really crazy. Maybe we have something to learn from other groups. I, I read books by people I don't agree with on everything. I listen to their speeches. I still learn from them. A week ago was a, a cool dinner. I, I was with uh, uh, Josh McDowell. Some of you have heard of him. He's an apologist. I don't agree with everything he teaches, not, not even on, a, on apologetics, on Christian evidences. But I learned some great things, and I took pages of notes. What do you think God would have you do? Well, we don't have exactly the same view on that topic, so I'm not going to listen to you. Is that really righteous indignation, or is that just laziness? Because you can't be bothered. Or is it just arrogance? I don't know. Maybe all three. And then Jesus gives this prayer, may they be one as we are one. And I think you've got to ask the question, did Jesus' prayer fall on deaf ears? Did, did, did the Father answer the Son's prayer? I mean, Jesus prayed that they may be one. Have we remained one? I mean, yeah, I guess organically all Christians are one because we hold to the basic Christian message. Uh, We breathe the same spirit. And yet, you know, even in the first century there was trouble. People say, we want to be like the first century church. Well, you may be, you've read John. Have you read first, second, and third John? About all the groups that were breaking off, the splinter groups. Some of them said that Jesus never even came in the flesh. Uh, John calls them the Antichrist, by the way. That group's called the Antichrist. You wouldn't want to be part of that group, would you? There are all these divisions. I mean, read 3 John. It's all messed up. This guy is kind of disfellowshipping that guy. If you welcome him, then he's going to kick you out of his church because the association's wrong. Where's the grace? It's all, a, you know, a territorial jockeying, border skirmishes, who's connected to who, who's better than whom. This is going on in the first century. So, at least in that way, I don't really want to be like the first century church. But it just gets a lot worse in the second century. And then we have an astronomical um, deterioration today with thousands and tens of thousands of groups who all say, we have the most accurate insight into the gospel. Seems like Jesus' prayer wasn't answered. Kind of like 1 Timothy 2.4. You know, it said, God's, God's will is that everyone be saved. God wants everyone to be saved, but, but does it happen? Sometimes the will of God is not effected because we're the middle step. He leaves certain things to us. Let me just read this last section wrap up. I am in them, and you are in me. May they be completely one, so the world may know. You've sent me, and I've loved them as you love me, Father. I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me because 
you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. May uh, I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. This is complete unity. It's about attitude. It's not a list of doctrines. It's about heart. I used to think, I'm confessing my own, my own sin. I used to think that if, if, if Bible readers were logical and if they could escape from tradition, you know, their, their conditioning, then as Bible readers we would all come to the same conclusions about every passage in the Bible. Yeah, because we would just be objective and just take it for what it says. And we... But really, I think that's another way of saying, well, if people were as unbiased as I am, if people were as level-headed and sensible as I am, they would all agree with me. Now, when you put it that way, it sounds a bit different, doesn't it? Then you say, oh, is Douglas saying give up the quest? Bag it. What's the point in trying to understand? Oh, I didn't say that. No, no, we don't throw doctrine to the winds. In fact, we, we dig even deeper to find God's Word so that we can be sanctified. But at the same time, we need to do a better job in the humility department. My perspective has changed. I mean, it used to be, okay, you've got all these denominations. They're all teaching this. Well, either one of them's right or they're all wrong. Well, that could be true. And probably they're all wrong. But to say, all wrong except for us, of course, now I think we're really missing it. It's too simplistic. Has anyone really arrived? Well, Douglas is saying that we shouldn't even try. We should just accept everybody, even the people who baptize for the dead and become gods of their own planet. No, I'm not saying that. We have a twin charge here. One charge is to invest ourselves in God's Word and be sanctified and learn the truth, but at the same time, we need to be like Jesus, bridge builders, not bridge blowers up. And what does he say? He calls God righteous Father. Ah, first part of the prayer, Father. Second part, Holy Father. Third part, righteous Father, which tells me that this unity issue is a matter of righteousness. And you can think unity among the sister churches of Atlanta, but I think we can think even more broadly than that among all who honor the name of Jesus and are trying to follow. I, I just got back from Miami, I said. Uh, Seventy elders, evangelists, teachers from around the world were there. Being part of these uh, meetings and these committees is, is probably good for me. But to be frank, I, I don't always like it. Not only because committees can be inefficient, described as an animal with four hind legs, but also because with committees you have to listen to other people talk, and even though you know the correct way to do it, you have to bite your tongue and you have to compromise. And I think we think, well, we should never compromise. Compromise is, is how your parents separated you and your brother when you're having a fight. You know, you meet the other guy halfway. That's not all bad. I'm not talking about diluting the truth. I'm talking about diluting our own personal agenda. You see, that means we have opportunities. We're forced to deal with our brother. Gives us opportunities to put others first and to give way. I think it also means we become more globally aware on this unity front. 
It's great for me to be down there, had dinner with the Nigerians, breakfast with the Kenyans. I spent time with the Mexicans and spent time with the Russians and the Ukrainians. Apparently, some people don't think I'm international enough. No, I'm just teasing. I appreciate it. This is a gift from the Dodds this morning, from the Dodds who just graduated from marriage, dynamic marriages. It says, Disip, Disipulado, and then Checha. So I guess it's French, Spanish, and Korean for disciple. But that's a great reminder of who we are. And so if you say, well, to me, the, the, the horizon of, uh, of my spiritual family just ends in Cobb County or Cherokee County, that's so messed up. It's the whole planet, and we need those kinds of reminders. And thank you, um, Michelle and Stephen, for that, for that gift. Sanctified. The Lord wants us to lead a holy life. This is a matter of righteousness. He made God's name known. That's not something you do by whispering it. It took three years. The unity is relational unity, not structural unity. It's not some giant organization. It's not even really doctrinal unity, although it's that too. But it's more relational unity that he's praying for. How should we view people outside our fellowship? Great question. And the disciples wrestled with this in Mark 9 and Luke 9. And the way that I was helped as a young Christian was this way. My campus minister said, try this, Douglas. We're Christians only. That's, that's our heart. We're Christians only, but we're not the only Christians. Does that make you uncomfortable? Really? Does it make you uncomfortable? Does Jesus' prayer make you a little bit uncomfortable? I thought it was brilliant. I heard that back in the autumn of 77, and I've been using it ever since. Hopefully with more humility. We have learned so much from the prayers of the Bible, the prayers of David and Solomon, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, the Psalms. And this prayer we've looked at demonstrates Jesus' determination, his focus, his single-mindedness. It's a sort of kind of a model for the kind of prayer we might pray. It's not one of those, quote, Father God prayers, give me this, give me that, give me, give me, give me, give me. It's not self-focused as a wish list, but it's more about aligning our will with God's will, with God's agenda. This prayer entails vision. You know, Jesus is going to die. It's not looking so good. He's got the 11, and they're kind of shaky. But he's praying for the multitudes who will come to faith through their ministry. Now, that's a great vision he has there. He knows God will work through his ministry even after his departure. And I think this prayer also shows his reliance on God. So what can I do? Well, first, determine to make his agenda my agenda. Complete the work with the right attitude. As you finish the semester, seniors and everyone else, as you finish work, remember that brings glory to God. But his agenda, not ours. Remember, remember that we're sanctified through the Word, knowledge, obedience, breathing the Spirit of the Word, letting Him guide us. That's how we glorify God. Remember, we can decide to be a unifying force within this church. Don't be so critical. Give people benefit of the doubt. In my experience, most people who are critical are sitting at the periphery of the fellowship. And I don't mean they're sitting on the side or the back or the front, but I mean they're not so involved. Because when you get involved, when you dig in, changes the way you deal with disappointment and people. Decide to be a unifying force among the churches. A lot of messages come my way. 
Well, I heard that so-and-so wasn't doing so well over there. I heard we shouldn't go to that church. They're not doing that great. Well, even if you're right, are you sure you're not a year out of date? And is that really the way Christians should be talking about other Christians? Watch out for the judgmental, superior attitude. We have to strive for humility. 1 Corinthians 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4. 1 Thessalonians 5, Jude 6. I'm just making it up. Well, I was making up the last two. So why should we strive for these things? Douglas, you're going to sit down now. Why should I listen to... I mean, why do I know that, that this is important for me, that this prayer? Well, because Jesus prayed it. And because he was clear. He prayed three things. That he would glorify God by completing the work. And that needs to be on our minds daily. His agenda, not mine. And he called him Father. Second, that his disciples remain holy in their lives and mission. And they would remain holy through their connection with his word. Learning and internalizing and obeying it, teaching it. Sanctification. And for that he prayed to his holy Father. And in the third part of the prayer... He asked that we would remain unified because if we don't, the world will not believe. Our message will be discredited and makes Christianity a farce. And this is a matter of right and wrong. And for that part of the prayer, he spoke to his righteous father. He not only said it, but he prayed it. And I think that settles it. What else can you say? That settles it, right? Douglas, thank you so much for speaking. You know, we've, we've really, if you've come out a few times, or especially even today if it's your first time, you realize we're a full-service congregation. You know, we provide a lot of opportunities. We provide the swamp for the young children, the dynamic marriage for the, those of us who are married. We've got, of course, Douglas preaching with uh, his theological background, and we've got singing, and we have dancing. Of course, I relate the most to Douglas with his intellect, I think. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, what a great day to come out and worship. A beautiful spring day in Atlanta. It is great to be here. I did want to remind you of a couple of things. One is the campus group is worshiping up on the hill, the teen and admin building today. And that's one of the things we're trying out with different groups over the next few Sundays. So there will be more room for us here in the auditorium. So that will continue on. Uh, also, remember Jim Casaza and Jeff Rohrbaugh and Bob's comments about the swamp. I don't want to, you know, spend a lot of time on that. But, you know, as parents, we should have the expectation that we're going to send our children to the swamp. You know, we have an expectation, and our children do, that uh, they're going to school. I mean, we don't ask them in the summertime, hey, do you want to go to school this fall? And we ought to have that expectation for the swamp and uh, figure out how to get them there. It's made so much of a difference in so many people's lives. I did want to say, though, particularly about the swamp and for Douglas, your generosity has supported Douglas to go around the world and to teach lessons from the Word of God on subjects that obviously you saw today that he, he get, has given a lot more study and thought and commitment and a lifetime to 
than we have and most, most people in the world. And we're part of supporting that and have been from the very beginning of our congregation. So your generosity, you should feel great about being able to know that Douglas is going around the world every year, goes to places where they, they've never had somebody come in and teach them. And they're so grateful that he will come and he will share the word of God with them. And uh, your generosity has helped that. It's also helped support that swamp mortgage to the tune of about 3000 to $3,600 a month from the very beginning, from seven years ago. So it's made a lot of difference, your generosity has, in a lot of people's lives. And I wanted to encourage you uh, along that line. I'm going to have a closing prayer, then we're going to have a closing song. God, we do thank you for the opportunity to worship today. Thank you for the time to be together, the time that we could... Uh, sing praises to you, that we could pray, that we could take of communion and remember Jesus' sacrifice and that we could be encouraged by your word. Father, I do pray that we leave inspired and encouraged to serve you this week, that our lives will bring glory to you and honor to you, that we can complete the work that you've given us to do. Father, I pray that we will be focused on that. I pray that we can be united in mind, Father, and in thought and our mission with you and your will for our life and also with our brothers and sisters here in this congregation and throughout the world. Father, we love you. We thank you for the time to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand for a closing song.